right, thank you, Pastor Marvin. How's everybody doing today? Great, great. Awake yet? Yeah? Good. A little cooler. You survived the heat. Yeah, a little cooler today. How many are glad it's cooler? Anybody? How many wish it was still 100 degrees? One, two, all right, a couple. All right, you're there, a couple. That's good. Announcing the senior Bible study reminded me that my, uh, my Wendy's parents' church, their seniors' ministry was called West of 50, um, which when I was in my 30s and early 40s, I thought that's a great name for a senior ministry. Now I'm in my mid to late 40s. I'm like, wait, that's not seniors. They're not. You've got be, you to be more than West of 50 to be a senior, right? You pick whatever you want. I don't know. You get a discount at McDonald's on coffee, I guess you fit in seniors. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Last week, I think, if you were in second service last week, I don't want to assume everyone's always in the same service every week, but if you were in this service last week, Pastor Marvin, I think, let you know, I was over visiting a church in a building in Woburn, First Church of Woburn, and uh, it's just a, it's a church that's been there for a long time. Uh, their building was built in 1860. But the congregation was formed in 1642. Um, They've been around a while. Uh, They've been around a while. Uh, Apparently, they ordained the first pastor, like, in the whatever we were called back then in 60. The colonies. I don't know the colonies. Uh, They ordained the first pastor. So anyway, church with a lot of history. But uh, they're trying to just decide what they're going to do with their building. They've, their congregation is smaller. So we're one of the churches they've been talking to. Uh, they know that we started a location in Belmont. So we've talked to them about whether a third location, maybe we'd start in Woburn. Uh, and we're just in conversations with them. And, but we just want to let you know about that and ask you to keep praying about that. There's no update, no news, but we'll let you know uh, how things progress or, or what happens there. Our ultimate prayer is that in all these kind of old New England church buildings, that God would continue to have a gospel witness in that place. And whether Mount Hope is a part of that or someone else, it's, it's like we're not in competition. We want to make sure there's a continued witness of the gospel in some of these places. And if we can be a part of that, um, then if God opens that door, that's great. Uh, so we're weighing that out, praying about it, uh, and looking at how you know, if the Lord's opening that door. We do believe that the Lord will lead us to a third location sometime, in addition to Burlington and Belmont and our school, which is in our Burlington location. We believe the Lord will open the door for a third uh, congregation location. Woburn might be that. It might not be. Um, but we're just praying and looking for those opportunities. Uh, we, are, we recognize that we are a part of a larger work that God is doing in this area. And we play a small part but we're happy to partner and help the gospel go forward in this area. Um, we're just a part of that larger work. I see Micah Harfield's here. Hello, Micah. If you don't know Micah, Micah was playing the bass this morning for us. But uh, after this, Micah will be going over to Anthem Church because that's where his parents are pastors in Burlington. And he gets three services today. Um, but thanks for jumping in on the bass. But it's just Anthem. I love having Anthem in Burlington. They planted a few years ago. They're growing. They're a vibrant church. We are a part of this larger community of what God is doing. In fact, last week, somebody emailed me who visited uh, Mount Hope and said, you know, she's still looking for churches. And, you know, she had a good visit at Mount Hope. And I said, you know what? Check out Anthem Church. They're a great church. You might love them. We're not in competition with each other. 
we are here serving alongside, partnering with each other. And so I want to make sure we have that uh, kind of mentality. And we always need to be thinking about that larger calling that we're a part of and that God has put us here to be a part of. In fact, this week, I happened to, I was here on Friday, and a young couple came in the front door. They were bringing in their kids to check out our school, and I just got in a conversation with them. And this morning, uh, they are candidating to be the pastors over at New Colony Church in Billerica. Those of you that know that church, right across from the high school in Billerica, and uh, seemed like a... I mean, I just met him for a few minutes, but a wonderful young family with maybe kids that'll be a part of our school. And these are ministries um, that we want to partner with in any way the Lord would allow us to so that the kingdom of God may come on earth as it is in heaven. In Boston area, in the Boston area, in Burlington, in Belmont, Billerica, Woburn, all these surrounding towns on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, with that, let's get into God's Word. Luke chapter 19. Uh, If you got your Bible in your chair rack, you're on page 878 is where we're going to be in just a moment. What do you do when you are waiting for somebody to return that went away? What do you do? What do you do? Someone, you're in a restaurant and somebody's like, I got to use the restroom. And they're gone for an inordinate amount of time. What do you do? During that time, you take out your phone, you start scrolling through. Yeah, maybe you people, how many people watch? You just sit there, yeah, love to people. You just look around, see what's going on. Or, uh, you know, what do you do when you, someone told you, I'll be right back, and you are sitting there in the meantime waiting for them to come back? That happens to us all the time in life. Jesus (laughs) knew that that was going to be the case for his followers in a very real way. Uh, Jesus, what Jesus knew was that during his time here on earth in the first century that he was going to go back to his father in heaven and there would be a gap of time between when he went back to his father in heaven and when he was going to come back to earth again and time would change and everything would change for all eternity. What he knew was there's going to be a gap of time there. And what are you going to do during that gap of time? What, our, what we as Christians call the first and the second coming of Jesus. And if you're new with us and you're new to church, that might all seem strange to you. Hopefully you can track with me about what we're talking about. Jesus came, in everything we read about in the Gospels, when Jesus came this first time, maybe you're familiar with that story. He was, he was born in a manger. You know the Christmas story. Lived his life, died on a cross, rose again and ascended into heaven and is there right now with God the Father. But one day, he said, he's gonna come back. And when he comes back a second time, it won't be as a baby in a manger. It'll be very different. It'll be uh, as, a, as a king and, and as a ruler. And so his followers knew all these prophecies, but what they didn't know about was there was gonna be a gap of time in between these two different kind of roles that Jesus was going to serve. And so Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 19 to explain what are you supposed to be doing during that gap of time they would live in, his immediate followers, and honestly, it's the time we're still living in. We're still, we're still waiting for that return of Jesus. And so he tells this parable, this story, in explanation of that. In fact, in this first verse, You'll get it. You'll see that Luke, the, Luke, uh, the author of this gospel, tells us why he's telling this. And here's what, here's what it says. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. 
As they heard these things, he proceeded, he is Jesus, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Didn't see that ending coming, did you? We'll talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here with us. Guide us into understanding and insight. Help us to hear what we need to hear this morning. Help us to apply it to our lives that we may live our lives for you. That we may know you more, love you more, and live more fully and completely for you. Open our hearts and our ears to what we need to hear. Help us and keep us from going down unhelpful paths. Keep us focused on those words that we need to hear this morning from you. We need you to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke tells us why he told this parable. It says, they suppose the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus knows that there's going to be a gap between him being there with them and going back to the Father and then him coming back again as a conquering king. So he tells them this story. 
There's a few things I think we need to grasp and take away from it. One is this, that even though there's a delay, the king will return, Jesus says. That's what this parable is saying, that there's, there's a delay, there's going to be a delay, there's going to be a gap, but don't get discouraged and don't be dismayed and don't be dissuaded. The, the, the king is coming back. There will be a return of the king. And he wants them to be clear about this. He wants them to know this and he wants them to not lose heart in the meantime and in the in-between time. What he also knows, though, and he wants to be clear, and it's in this parable, and maybe you caught it, it's a little unusual, there are people that don't want the king to come back. There are people that have no interest in having anyone rule over them, let alone Jesus. And so he brings up this group of citizens that say, we don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want him to be king. Let me give you just a little bit of historical reference for how this would have hit the first century readers because there is something interesting that's going on here. Jesus is hearkening back to a historical um, instance that was in the not too distant past of his hearers. Uh, Jesus is talking and teaching in about 27 AD in our timeline. Uh, at, in 4 BC is when Herod the Great died. Herod the Great was ruling over this Palestinian territory in this area, and he was ruling over it, and then he died in 4 BC. And when he died, there was some um, disagreement about who was going to rule next. In fact, Herod had a couple different wills, and they said different things, and people were kind of, uh, you know, vying for power, as one does during those times. And one of the people, one of Herod's sons, name was Archelaus, that was his name, easy for me to say. And Archelaus wanted to rule this area of Palestine. And we're told, this is talked about in, in a man named Josephus, his history, he's a Jewish historian of the time, he writes about Archelaus. And he writes about his vying for power and his trying to step into power. And one particular instance where there was a bit of an uprising in Jerusalem and in the temple, and Archelaus sent the army in and killed 3,000 people in one night. But he wanted to be king, but you can't just call yourself king, not when Caesar is the emperor. So he had to sail to Rome in order to ask Caesar if he could have the title king. Sound familiar? Parable, a nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom. So Archelaus, I can't say that word twice the same way, <laughs> sailed away to Rome to become king. But also there was a delegation of Jewish people that left Jerusalem and also sailed to Rome to argue to Caesar, we do not want this man to be our king. And here's why. Here's what he did. Here's the cruelty that he committed. And in the end, what Caesar decided was that uh, Archelaus would get um, something called an ethnarchy, is what he granted him. In other words, you could be ruler of this ethnic group of people. And if you prove yourself faithful and well-deserving, then you can have the title king that your father had. He never proved himself faithful and well-deserving and never was called king. 
But you can see the historical reference that Jesus is making. And what I think is interesting is Josephus wasn't a Christ follower. He was a Jewish historian, but he is documenting a historical event that happened, and Jesus' parable clearly is referencing back to this. And his hearers would know what he's saying. And his hearers would make this connection that, okay, he had to go away, he had to become king, and then he comes back as king, and Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die on a cross, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven with God the Father, and when I come back, I'm coming back as a king. But there will be those who do not want me to be king. There will be those who do not want me to rule over them. And this is the severity of the end of the story. And we read the end of the story and we read these words about bring them before me and have them slaughtered before me. And we say, wow, that's harsh. I think Jesus is trying to bring forward the importance and the significance that these are life or death issues. He's not talking about, he's not talking about light issues. He's talking about serious issues. That the choice to follow Jesus and, and to have him as king of your life or the choice not to is life or death issues in eternity. It's choosing life, eternal life with God, or choosing eternity apart from God and judgment. And Jesus makes it clear. I, I think that harsh ending is to know these are serious things that Jesus is talking about, but no one will be forced into the kingdom. There's no one that's forced to live in the kingdom who does not want Jesus as their king. I agree with C.S. Lewis, who said, in the end, everyone gets what they want. If you don't want Jesus as Lord, you will not live in eternity in Jesus' kingdom. If you want, and you desire, and you worship Jesus as Lord, that that's where you'll spend eternity. Even though there's delay, the king will return. Secondly, you... (laughs) are entrusted, while the king is gone, you are entrusted with the gospel until the king returns. Let me unpack this one for a moment. What's evident in this parable is you and I, and when I say you and I, I'm talking to those who trust in Christ. If you're here as a visitor and you don't yet follow Jesus, then just listen in. Here's Here's what the Bible says to Christians. Here's what the Bible says to those who are following Christ, that you are entrusted, you are a steward of something that you have to uh, take care of for God's sake that he's given to you. And that thing uh, we'll call the gospel, the good news. Gospel translates to good news. The message of hope through Jesus Christ. God has placed this and given this to you as a Christian for you to... Steward, and we'll talk to you what it means, talk about what it means to be a steward. But what is this gospel? Well, I, I think one way to look at it is the gospel is the good news that there's a king, there's a God, there's a creator, and he's good. He's created you and everything that you see with a purpose. He loves you, knows all the bad you have done, and has made a way to a good, forgiven, joyful and pure life in eternity. And that's good news. And he gives that to you. Another way, a shorter way to put it, Pastor Tim Keller says, uh, the gospel is you are more sinful than you ever thought and more loved than you ever imagined. That this is the gospel. This is the message. 
that you are entrusted with. And you say, well, pastor, how do you know when Jesus talks about the minas that he's talking about the gospel, that he's talking about that you've been entrusted with the gospel? Well, I think we go back to verse 11, the beginning of this passage, and it starts out with these words, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Well, what are these things? What are these things they heard? Immediately prior to this, in verse 10, this is what they heard. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's my purpose on earth. I'm going away, but I'm entrusting you with it. What am I entrusting you with? The same mission I had. Take this message of hope. Take this message of the gospel. Take this message of good news and take it to a world that needs to hear it. This isn't the parable of the talents in Matthew, if you're familiar with the parable of talents. Remember the parable of the talents? They get different amounts. Some gets five talents, some gets 10 talents. This isn't the parable of the talents. It's a different story. Everyone gets the same thing in this story. One mina. Everyone gets the gospel. Everyone gets the message of Jesus. Everyone gets this hope that God has given and everyone is entrusted with it. And this third point, everyone's going to be accountable for it. When Jesus returns, there will be an accounting of how you invested your life, how you stewarded this gospel. And I just want to park here for a few minutes. I rushed through those first two points kind of quickly because I really want to, for a few minutes, just want to park on this point. Because maybe it's one we don't talk about enough or even much. The idea, one, of an accounting at the end of this life, but two, on rewards given in heaven. I think a lot of times, maybe we just talk about, hey, you know, come to Jesus, (laughs) receive forgiveness, get into the family of God, have eternal life, but maybe I don't talk much about, maybe we don't talk much about what the Bible talks about and says, there's actually rewards in heaven. There's actually God judging and giving out rewards for work done on earth. I don't, no one's going to be dissatisfied in heaven. I don't think you're going to get to heaven and be like, oh, phew, wow, not what I expected. <laughs> no one's going to be dissatisfied. There's like no tears, no mourning, but it's also not equal rewards. I mean, I, the, I don't know. The Bible's clear on that. That there will be rewards for the work here down on earth. I don't know how all that works out. I don't know what it all looks like. I don't know how it's differentiated. I just know Jesus talks about it. And it's in the scriptures in many places. And it's in this parable. I got one mina, Lord, I turned it into 10. And Jesus says, Well done. Good job, faithful servant. Here's 10 cities. I don't know what that looks like in eternity, but here's a great responsibility. Come and rule with me over 10 cities. I turn one into five. Well done. Good job. Here's five cities. Come and rule with me. Come and be a part of what I'm doing in the world. There's an accounting, a judgment, and then a distribution. But it's the last one. That's really the point of the story, isn't it? You gave me one mina. Here's your one mina back. You have back what you gave to me. And the master says, you're a wicked servant. 
take what's been given to him and give it to the one with 10. And even to these early listeners, they're like, wait, he already has 10. Shouldn't we give it to someone who has less? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He's proven himself faithful to take care of much. So he can take care. Give him the other one. And again, this differentiation of of rewards and, and, and rewarding people. But he takes the one away. Takes the one away. And and the question I think comes in our minds is, well, then what happens to the one minor guy? What happens to the guy that just returns it? Is he in the kingdom? Is he out? Is he a a follower of Christ? Is he banished from heaven and eternity? It's left a bit ambiguous. We don't have an answer to that. Again, it's a parable Jesus is telling. But if I have to comment theologically on it, I would say at best... The one minor guy would be a 1 Corinthians 3.15 story, which says this, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, there are some people who will spend their lives as Christ followers building up worthless things. They'll spend their lives at times investing and building worthless things that have really no value in eternity. And they'll be a part of the kingdom, but they won't receive the rewards and the things that they'll they'll make it in barely. That's what the scriptures say, that there will be those that I suppose at best, this is the one minor guy. At worst, he's not a part of the kingdom at all. But the criteria for judgment is what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? And I think specifically, what did you do with the message of the gospel that I entrusted you with? This good news that I told you to go and share with others. What did you do with it? Jesus' words were engage in business. Did you engage in business? Did you share it with others? I think sometimes Christians don't realize what business we're actually in. I think it was Peter Drucker, the business leader, who said, you know, the two most important questions any business can ask is, what business are we in and how's business? And I think sometimes Christians, we forget what business we're in. And what I want to this morning make 100% clear is what criteria Christ is telling us that Christians will be judged with when it comes to rewards in heaven. And that is, how did you steward the gospel? How did you handle the message that you were entrusted with to give to others? We have to be careful about is one, don't simply give back to God what he gave to you. That's what the one minor guy did. Don't simply give back to God what he gave to you. I think there's a couple ways that happens. I think one way that happens is one person, you come to church, you come to Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, but really what you consider is you've just collected your fire insurance policy, you're good for eternity, and now you go and live your life however you want to live your life because you check that box. I think that's one person who just gives back to God what he gave to them. They don't do anything with it, they don't change the world with it. They don't share it with anyone else. They're just, I'm good. I've, I've, I'm safe for eternity. I'm going to be in heaven. Now I'm going to go live my life however I want. And I think that person at the end of life could be saying to God, you gave me the gospel. I'm giving it back to you. I didn't do anything with it. 
But I think there's another person that could also be in that situation. And that's the person that comes to Christ, comes to Jesus, gives their life to Jesus, and then, and they get real involved. I mean, they are reading the Bible, they are going to church, they are, they are listening to podcasts and sermons, and every app on their phone is Christian, and every music in their car is Christian, and every group they're a part of is Christian, and every person in their life is Christian, and everything in their life is insulated from the world around them, and they never have an opportunity to tell anyone who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus, and at the end of their life, they may be going to God saying, here's what you gave me. I didn't give it to anyone else. I didn't share it with anybody. I didn't do anything with it. I think either one could potentially be the one minor person who is entrusted with the gospel, but never did what Jesus expected them to do with it. And we need to be careful about that because this is the criteria Jesus is giving. What did you do with the message that I gave you? Did you keep it to yourself? Keep it in the handkerchief? Say, oh, I kept it safe. Here it is because I thought you were cruel. Some people might read this passage and saying, well, God's admitting that he's cruel. The first two people, I think, totally discount this. What did he do? You gave me 10 minors, here's 10 cities. You gave me five minors, here's five cities. He's the exact opposite of cruel. He was generous. He's beyond generous. And yet, a false picture of God had this one minor person acting in a way that was not in accordance with what God would want. Second thing, not only don't simply give back to God what he gave you, but second, don't give to God something that's of no value to him. I think at times, this is where we might have the ladder leaning against the wrong wall that you're climbing up. We think, well, I'm going to gain all these possessions and positions and degrees and money and houses, and we're building up. We live our lives building up all these things, and at the end of our life, we can give them to God and say, God, look what I got. And to that, God maybe responds with the words of Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12, where it says this, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In other words, everything you just collected was already mine to begin with, God would say. I already owned it. You're not giving me anything that's not mine. You didn't invest it into anything that's not mine. You didn't grow it into anything. There's only one thing in all eternity, in all creation that I know about that God does not own that he is interested in having, and that is the expansion of his kingdom into the souls of men and women who don't know him. That is the only thing that you and I can offer to the Lord that he does not have because as I said in the beginning, he will not force anyone to be a part of his kingdom, but he invites and he wants and he desires his creation, men and women, to come into his kingdom. It's the only thing that you can say to God, here's the increase. It's the only thing that you could say to God, here's where, you're, here's, here's where I invested your message. It's the souls and the hearts of men and women are the only thing that God does not have that he really wants. And it's the thing that he invites us to be a part of. 
expanding his kingdom into that for his glory and because he knows it's for our greatest good. And so he invites us into it. At the end of this life, it'll be interesting to see the things that are of value when we're judged on this criteria. I think about uh, one person I thought about as President Jimmy Carter, and regardless of what you think about Jimmy Carter's politics, uh, one thing that's interesting to me is he taught Sunday school all his life. Still, into his later years, he's 97 or something now. I don't know if if he still is right now, but up until recently, teaching Sunday school in his church in Georgia. And I wonder if at the end of it, when Jimmy Carter stands in front of Jesus, and there's an accounting like this one in this parable, that it wouldn't be something like, oh, the president of the United States, whatever. It was all mine anyway. I loved what you did in that Sunday school with those kids. I love what you did about expanding my kingdom into the hearts of boys and girls who didn't know you, who didn't know me. And I wonder if the end of our life, it'll be similar to that. The achievements that we think are achievements really aren't that important. It's not the judgment criteria. What did you do with the gospel? What did you do with the message that I let you hold for a little while in a place that desperately needed to hear it? What did you do with it? So what does this mean? Does this mean you stop working and stop doing what you're good at and just become a preacher or an evangelist? Nope, that's not what it means. It means you leverage what you do while you do it for the sake of the kingdom and God's return. It means the place where God has put you, that workplace, that neighborhood, that school, that family. You stay there, you work, you're excellent, you do what God has gifted you to do all the while looking for opportunities to share and show the love of Jesus with the people around you. Because ultimately, that's the criteria that God uses. What's it look like? Well, in the Bible, I think it looks like Jesus feeding 5,000 people who are hungry and telling them about eternal life. I think it looks like the Apostle Paul sewing animal skins together to make tents and telling them about the God who came and died for them that they can put their trust in to forgive their sins. I think it looks like Stephen in the book of Acts who had the knowledge to put together a food distribution system to take care of the widows, and then preached about Jesus to the point where he became the first martyr. It looks like wherever God has placed you, looking for opportunities to expand this kingdom, to go return on the gospel that has been placed within you. In our church, what does it look like? It looks like welcoming and buying candy from a family who had to flee their country and letting them know about Jesus who loves them. It looks like educating children in our first-class school facilities here and putting excellent playgrounds and gyms here and then telling them about the Jesus who loves them and cares for them, stewarding the gospel that has been given to us. It looks like talking to a church in Woburn about what are you going to do with your building and how can you continue to see a gospel presence in that place for Jesus. 
It looks like Sunday morning and those people that just left this room with all those little people. (laughs) Those volunteers that are in those rooms right now with your children, telling them about God's love. That it might be the most significant thing they do this week. That those people in those rooms could be in all other places this week. They're in their jobs, they're in their homes, but this morning, maybe the most important thing they're doing is telling them about Jesus. It looks like Wednesday night, those of you who are here volunteering in our student ministry, telling them about Jesus, stewarding the gospel, which in the end might be the most significant thing you do all week. What does it look like? How are you stewarding the gospel? What does it look like? I was thinking about George Cote this morning. I thought you might be here, George. (laughs) It looks like George Cote, who was a for many years, an investor with Merrill Lynch and did all kinds of things, investing and trading. But one day, on the floor of his office, knelt down with a man named Dick Mahondro and prayed the sinner's prayer and led him to Jesus. And it may be the most significant thing he did. And Dick became the first treasurer of this church and was a deacon of this church for many years and led this church in in many ways and many decisions we had to make. And George, with all the trades and all the things that you did, maybe one of the most significant things you did, would say was stewarding the gospel on the floor of your Merrill Lynch office, telling Dick about Jesus. And it's maybe in your life too, wherever that might be, that the work that you do is not unimportant. But what's most important is what you do with this gospel, is what you do with this message that's been entrusted to you. Maybe in your life, it looks like just meeting someone for coffee that's going through a difficult time and you pray for that open door and you ask for the Holy Spirit's open door and you talk with them about the God who does not abandon them, who loves them, who cares for them even in their time of difficulty. Maybe it's getting together with a couple who's struggling in their marriage and thinks it's over and you talk with them about the God of the resurrection who has hope even in their hopelessness. Maybe it's just helping someone with some gifts you have with finances to help them organize their finances and telling them about the freedom that God wants them to have. I don't know what it is, but I know that in your doing, whatever you're doing, that God's desire is that you would also steward the gospel during that time. So what are you doing with the deposit of the gospel that has been given to you? Are you investing it for a return Are you hiding it in a cloth, keeping it to yourself, going to church and giving in the offering, reading your Bible, but not talking to people about it, not praying about it, not sharing it? If the latter is the case, then I would say you need to get to know the heart of your master better, the heart of your king, who has entrusted you with something that the world needs, and he's asked you to be a part of sharing it. And in the end, when the king returns, will be the primary measure, the primary thing he asks us about. What did you do with the gospel? I'm going to ask our worship team to come, and we're going to prepare to respond. It might be, let me just bring one last, I think, important 
maybe principle, and that's this. It might be that you say, Pastor, I have tried sharing and nobody ever responds. <laughs> I've, tried, I, I've tried sharing with my family and they just laugh at me and they don't, they're not interested. I try sharing with people. I, I don't do it well. It doesn't work for me. Uh, if you ever invest in a mutual fund, you think about investing, because Jesus is talking about business and investing. Sometimes you might invest in a mutual fund. Once you do that, here's the thing. You can't make that mutual fund perform well. You can't make it give a return. If you figured that out, how to do that, let me know. I want in. But you can't make it give you a return on your investment. All you can do is make an investment. I think there's some similarities to the kingdom. You can't force someone into the kingdom of God. You can't make them follow God because Jesus himself doesn't do it. Because Jesus himself doesn't force anyone into his kingdom. You can't force them in. You can invite them. You can make an investment. You can share the message that's been shared with you. And that's ultimately what God will ask. Did you do it? Did you share what was shared with you? Did you steward that? Give that away. To give away what's been given to you. That's the call of the follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, God, sometimes uh, we come to your word and it's a hard word and it touches and affects our soul and it convicts us and it ought to, Lord. Lord, speak to us. Lord, those of us in this room who call ourselves Christians, who call ourselves followers of Jesus. We have a responsibility with the message that we have received to not keep it to ourselves, but to share it with others. And what I believe, Lord, is you'll allow us to do that in ways and in places that work with how you created us to be. And even the shyest person in this room, that you will open up a door for have a conversation so that they can show and share the love of Jesus with the people around them. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would, even now, as we sing this song of worship about who you are and how you're our king and how we just read about that you're the king that's returning, that you would show us, Lord, show us those places in our lives where we have the opportunity to show and share the love of Jesus with the world around us to steward the gospel message that's been given to us well. Ultimately, Lord, so that one day, whether we leave this earth through death or you come again in our lifetime, that we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is our cry. That is our plea. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name.